This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation-funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred-rights.org, that's W-R-I-T-E-S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Anyone who has listened to this podcast over the past several years knows I love to talk to scholars about their love of libraries, researching, archives, and what it's like to dive deeply to discover what lies within the world's great collections. On this episode, N.A. Mansour and I discuss such work. N.A. Mansour is a historian and a Ph.D. candidate at Princeton University's Department of Near Eastern Studies, where she is writing a dissertation on the transition between manuscript and print in Arabic language contexts. She produces podcasts for different venues, co-edits Hazane.info, and works for different museums and archives. She also writes for the general public on culture, Islam, and history. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much for listening. And a Mansoor, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm so delighted that you're here. And I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit. Yeah, so I wear many hats. Yeah. Uh, so based on any given day, I'm doing any number of things, but I guess for the sake of brevity, um, I am a PhD candidate at Princeton University's Department of Near Eastern Studies. I'm being trained as a historian, and I work in kind of the crevices between intellectual history, material history, art history, um, and I also do a lot of writing as a culture critic. I edit a website that's meant to kind of be a platform for the public on all things Islamic studies as broadly defined as possible. It's called Hazine, which is Ottoman Turkish for repository. Mm -hmm. um, and I've also done like a lot of dabbling in podcasts. I'm also a cultural heritage worker. Uh, so that takes up a lot of my time. I've spent much of the last three or four years working <laughs> Uh, in what is often referred to as the glam sector. So galleries, libraries, archives, and museums. Amazing. And a lot of my work has been around, I mean, because so much of my, my, my gateway was that so much of my work kind of was around manuscripts and archival objects that might not be documents necessarily, that I gravitated towards these fields. And that kind of opened a little gateway to contemporary art as well. So I've done a lot of work in contemporary art. Excellent. What is the uh, the URL for Hazane if anybody out there wants to check it out right off the bat? Hazane.info. So that's spelled H-A-Z-I-N-E dot I-N-F-O. Wonderful. Okay. So I cannot refrain from nerding out about podcasts with you for at least a few minutes here um, because this, is, this has consumed so much of my life over the last four years across hundreds of episodes and conversations. 
And I'm wondering about what you do in podcast production and if we can just kind of, you know, um, have a little bit of podcaster camaraderie for a moment. (laughs) Of course. Yeah, I was a very early fan of podcasts. I'd say like 2002, 2003. Wow. So when you had to download them onto your desktop and stuff like that and then download it onto an iPod or whatever. Yeah. And it was even worse for me because I was living in, in Palestine and we had we lived in the middle of the country in the middle of literal nowhere and our internet was so shaky, but I was a huge, 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 well, before she kind of added herself as a turf, huge fan of the Harry Potter series by JK Rowling. And uh-huh. um, there was a, a, like a big community online and I would download, they had, they had podcasts and that was my first kind of entry point. And then also because I live, I lived, I spent most of my life not living in the U S but in former British colonies. And you're exposed to the BBC. And when the BBC started making their shows into podcasts, it was even easier to kind of catch up. So I always kind of had faith in the medium because I thought it was, it was just a way for me to connect to radio when I didn't have access to it. Mm. Um, Early exposure to NPR was through like uh, the pop culture happy hour podcast, which is still running. So um, I began doing sort of podcast interviews for the new books network in 2016, 2017, I want to say. Um, and then I have been doing podcasts for the Maidan website. I was invited by their wonderful team, um, which includes Ahmed Tekeliolu and Micah Hughes. And they kind of run the production side of things. Um, and yeah, uh, the podcast I currently do for th- with them is focused on cultural heritage makers uh, and professionals. So kind of looking at academia through that lens and kind of knowledge production through that lens. Mm. What do you, what is your favorite thing about making your own podcast and like doing that work? So I know you loved consuming them, but like, what do you like about doing that actual work? Because there's so much work behind the scenes that goes into it. And I'm just curious about your thoughts on that too. I really like the drafting process. I like writing. I like coming up with questions. I like kind of brainstorming and figuring out who I'm going to invite, thinking about like what a season looks like. I think that's really fun. I really, really hate editing. Mm, I really yeah. hate all the nitty gritty stuff. Um, that's that's like my least favorite part of the process is and then also uh, like some very early podcast attempts that are no longer online uh was me grappling with how to upload them and (laughs) the first time I did it it literally took a whole day I I I but then it's very smooth sailing right because you've got that muscle memory right like Mm -hmm. I'm sure what was your first upload kind of like uh, well, it was like seven or eight minutes long about introducing the series. And this podcast started as a classroom project. So if you go back and listen to my very first episode, it's completely irrelevant to what the show became because I was focusing on making curriculum materials for my students and their parents to consume uh, outside of class for extra credit projects. So like the first episode of this show is completely irrelevant. And my first artwork that I made, I made on pages and like the color scheme is terrible the font is just something that was like a preloaded font in pages on my mac and it was just ridiculous trying to get it to show up in apple and stuff like that it was it took me forever <laughs> days and days oh my god yeah i made mine on ms word and it was just like very simple like typography like i i was very careful with the typographic stuff but like getting the specs right yeah was was me screenshotting and over and over and over again at different magnification because I just couldn't, I didn't have the skill at that point. 
Yeah, 100% the same. Like getting that 1400 by 1400 JPEG file to like upload it as a perfect square into Apple was like mind blowing to me. And then when it shows up in iTunes for the first time and you're like, oh my God, it's real. Yeah. Relief. Absolute relief. Exactly. It's just so crazy. This is such a fun hobby. And I'm uh, I'm just glad to hear about your experiences as well. Um, But I do want to know about some of your areas of expertise as well. Uh, I know that you are working on the history of devotion, materials, visual culture, manuscripts, and I want to know a little bit about the origin of some of the areas of expertise that you have and like, you know, maybe any like notable stopping points on your academic journey that you might want to discuss. Yeah. So I originally started out very rooted in intellectual history and kind of, um, Islamic studies and theology, but also kind of greater Arabic language intellectual history focused on the Arabic speaking worlds. Um, uh, and I originally was going to write this dissertation that was going to tie together Islamic studies and uh, the greater intellectual history in this way, because it's, it's typically not done. It's typically these fields are very, they're very distinct. And then sometimes in Arabic language intellectual history, you'll get a lot of Islamism, which is kind of political Islam. Um, there aren't really great terms for it, but basically attempts at like establishing a Muslim state that's gov- that's governed in some form, some understanding of Islam. Mm. And I was very frustrated by that. And I wanted to do something that was a little closer to the earth. I wanted to do something that was actually engaging with what people thought and believed. So I thought, okay, history of of print and history of journalism. And immediately I began thinking about the materiality of things. It was like, okay, how are these things being held and how are these things circulating? And then when I was dealing with archival sources, the question that kept coming up because I was focusing on journalism um, was in the 19th century, mind you, um, was, okay, but what about the books? So when I started looking at my archival sources and looking at what were the first books to be printed, Muslim devotional texts kind of just hopped out at me. Like it just, it made complete sense to me because Muslim devotional texts are just sort of ever present in the Muslim majority world. You see them everywhere. They're being sold at bus stops. And it was funny. It took me back to this moment on a bus in Morocco years ago when someone came on to sell pamphlets and other little things. And one of the pamphlets was a devotional pamphlet. And I turned to the friend who was with me and I said to him, this would be a great topic for something for like research. Mm. And those two moments kind of clicked to me. And I, around the same time I was living in Turkey, I met someone who uh, became a great mentor. Uh, he's a book, a book um, conservator, but he also works with an organization that does a lot to do, has a lot to do with like the conservation and the preservation and education around Islamic manuscripts. And Islamic manuscripts is a very broadly defined term. It can often refer to everyone who lived in Muslim majority lands um, and who continues to live in Muslim majority lands. I think people use the the term Islamic world in the contemporary. It's not a perfect term, mind you, Um, but back to kind of my journey. So he, I mentioned to this mentor of mine as we began to spend more time together that I was, feeling particularly drawn towards devotional texts because devotional texts were probably the first books to be printed for a mass audience. I'm not really interested in things that are printed just to be printed as like mm-hmm. novels. I'm interested in like the mass audience component. And he encouraged me and kind of sat me down and was like, okay, if you're looking at manuscripts, this is what you have to look for. And just 
he, he was really instrumental. He was the first person to formally teach me as well. Um, and yeah, it, that was kind of how that I went down that road. It was this realization of something that I'd always been interested in. And then also this person's encouragement. And then also with regards to materiality, it just became apparent that I couldn't talk about these objects, these books without thinking about the other objects around them, thinking about textiles, thinking about prayer beads, thinking about architecture and mosques. So that's kind of how I went down that road. And around the same time, I was beginning to work more as a cultural heritage worker, inspired both by my book conservator friend, but also by um, a mentor of mine in the museum who kind of solidified this idea of materiality. Um, so in the museum space, I've worked with Mitra Bospor, who's at the Princeton University Art Museum. And she really helps me understand, even though most of the time when we're working together, we're working on contemporary art, how important the materiality of an object is and how you can't really divorce that from the object. And there's the degree to which you can't get too precious about it, but there's, especially in a digital age, but at the same time, I think it's really helped crystallize a lot of how I think about these things. And the time I've spent in contemporary art is something I'm hoping to bring to my book projects on uh, the history of Muslim devotional texts. Mm, I love it. Well, I read an article that you did recently covering you know, some of those topics. And the article was called Catholic Library Muslim Books in Contingent Magazine. And I really loved this piece, um, and I loved the, what uh, your document, your documenting of your trip that you went on. And I want to talk about this article if we can for a minute. Is that okay? That's absolutely fine. I love it. So your piece opens with a scene of meeting a personality of. I uh, can you pronounce his name for me? It's Doctor Jean Druel. Is that correct? There you go. Excellent. So he's a Dominican Catholic friar at the Dominican Institute for Oriental Studies in Cairo. And I'm wondering how you came to be interested in that particular library and that particular scholar, Dr. Druel. Yeah. So I had that, that article and the events within it take place in like late 2019, early 2020 before everything mm. shut down. Yeah. Um, and I met Jean two years prior um at an event in Cairo my first week ever in Cairo uh and I I had heard about him from multiple people who had told me oh you should go meet him you should go to the Dominican Institute for Oriental Studies IDEO um you'll really like it they have a great library blah 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 um and so I randomly met him and I was sort of drawn into the orbit of the friars who live there. So it's a research center and it's a library. And the thing about it, it's it's got a great location. It's near Al-Azhar, which is this centuries old center of Islamic learning in Cairo. And the area around it is also full of different tombs and different sites um, that are more or less sacred to different Muslims and different types of Muslims. So it's always an interesting place to go because you walk into this beautiful space, which is this garden. Um, and in the middle of it is this building with the library, which is in itself this architectural feat. They took a lot of care to designing it. Mm. Uh, and the brothers have been there since the 1930s, more or less in some capacity or another. And they've always maintained really good connections to Al-Azhar and the other religious communities in Egypt. A lot of their brothers are also Coptic Catholics. Um, 
they come from all over the world, but what they've been trying to implement is a system where they basically bring in brothers from all over the world to study Islam in some capacity in Arabic. And they become both conduits of interfaith activity and also scholars in their own right. They take being, the Dominicans generally take being scholars very seriously. Another reason I was drawn to them was my mother's Catholic uh, and she's Mexican and Catholicism has always been a very big presence in my life. Mm. Uh, regardless of the fact that I'm Muslim, I grew up in a Christian village in the West Bank as well in Palestine. Um, So I began spending a lot of time with them. I think it didn't hurt that some of the brothers are younger. John himself is just very, very vibrant. And I was sort of drawn into their, their orbit because they're very unique in the realm of Islamic studies because they actually engage Muslim communities on a day-to-day basis. Um, when the library is open, it's open four days a week, typically, um, on a normal day, at a normal week, it's open four days a week. And they bring in all these, I mean, the people who gravitate towards IDEO and the library and also the lectures they run, it's a very diverse group of people. Uh, they really can bring together all these different types of Muslims as well as foreigners. And it's just, it's a very lively place. Um, and I mean, I think this is this is part of the article. It's, I became very close to the younger brothers, especially because they were also in a position where they were trying to get to know Cairo. A lot of them, it was their first or second year there. So we would go off and we would explore and we would do things. And we would also spend a lot of time praying together and learning from each other. So one of the last big things we did, which I don't think this is mentioned in the articles, we did this big mosque crawl mm. where we went to different holy sites and they, I mean, we would just, spent a lot of time talking. Um, so yeah, that's, that's them in a nutshell, but they also run all these different projects. And that's kind of how I got involved because I found this collection of printed devotional manuals and you don't really get those at a lot of big state libraries in Egypt because those things are considered ephemeral and not really collected. Um, and there was this brother in the eighties who was interested in devotion and my sort of romanticization of the reason why the library has that collection is because like the Dominicans, like many other orders have a certain set of litanies that are specific to their tradition. And they actually work at translating them. They have their own printing press project that comes out of IDEO. And it just makes sense that those books are at that library and that they're accessible. Um, And the article is kind of about me grappling with the project of digitizing with them on an emotional and ethical level. I'm curious about the inventory of the place as well. Like, can you like tell me a little bit about what is like in this place that makes it so special? Yeah. So in addition to those rare books, they also have what I would say is one of the best libraries for Islamic studies anywhere in the world because Cairo is such a big publishing hub, you get so many of the books produced in Arabic, like on Islamic studies, be they edited versions of manuscripts of these classical texts that have never been accessible before being edited from manuscript editions into published editions, which is a very lengthy process we call critical editing. Um, But also they have all the materials written in European languages as well. So they're just, because they're scholars, and because they also have an excellent librarian staff and because so many of them are librarians themselves, this all kind of comes together to produce 
an excellent library. So it's just like, it's a treat as, as a researcher because you can just go in and you're like, oh, I need this book. It's close stats, but, um, but it's just, it's such a treat. Everything is so well done. I, I, it's, yeah. I love this. Okay. So, because I can tell that you really admire this library. I mean, is this like a pretty, is this sort of an overlooked place around the world within scholarship in Islamic studies? Mm, it depends. Uh, I think in certain European circles, especially French circles, they're quite well known. My sense was that Americans were less familiar with the space. Um, within the scholarly space within Egypt, they're very well known. Their lectures draw big crowds of Egyptians and Arabic speakers. Um, but Americans and maybe Brits know a lot less about the space. And that's kind of part of its charm is that it's very isolated in its own way from the researchers unit, like kind of circuit in Cairo. Um, but yeah, like I said, I think a part of the joy also for me is, is when I'm there, I get to see my friends. Nice. Okay. Well, what I want to know now is more about this, uh, the digitization projects that you were doing, because there are some pictures that you took and put in the article. And I think that some of the pictures that you put in were from texts that were dating back to like the 1880s, I think. And I'm just wondering what you personally have to do as the digitizer to make sure that these books are preserved and uh, well cared for, but also like not put at risk during the digitization process. I'm wondering about all of these things. I am not the person who actually digitizes them, which is really nice. I just sort of, I can take pictures of my for my own use. Um, anyone who comes in can request them if they go through the catalog. Um, and the catalog itself is really excellent. They made it themselves. So if anyone, if people know about cataloging, it's not according to Mark standards or else, um, it's not according to Mark standards or TEI, which are very commonly used. Um, so they designed their own system that was kind of in depth, like that kind of echoed the specificity of bibliography in the Arabic, not the Arabic speaking world, but in the Islamic tradition. And that of course includes the Christian and Jewish traditions that also kind of our commentary base. That's kind of the bread and butter of how books in the Islamic tradition are written is through networks of commentaries, um, but also of teaching, right? So people keep track of who taught who. So they built that into their catalog. I wasn't doing the digitizing. They hired someone to do that. That was kind of part of the budget they produced. What I was supposed to do was assess what books were necessary for us to digitize. Um, and that was based on my knowledge of the, of the devotional texts in particular, knowing that those were very special and that those needed to be preserved because there weren't many other copies of those printed texts. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a big part of it, but also my knowledge of print generally. So knowing which would, were the big publishing houses um, across the Arabic speaking world, being able to pick up on when something was rarer. And then also I knew what other books had been digitized because I was so familiar with the archives for this. So I was doing a lot of back and forth. And what I would do is if you look at the article, there, there are pictures of the, the closed stacks. So I would take my laptop downstairs um, and mm -hmm. I would look, I'd be on the Wi-Fi, of course, and I would basically open different windows and try to figure out and just go through different catalogs and take notes in Excel files. That's more or less my job. And then I would also go and talk to Jean um, and the librarian who's mentioned in the piece, Rene Vincent. And we would go over basically 
if there were holes in the collection, if, if extra data needed to be added, things like that. That's kind of how we would go through things, um, which was a lot of the joy of it because we can sort of, Jean's also a book historian, Rene Vincent is a librarian. So we would all kind of meet in the middle um, with our shared interests in this project. Mm, okay, cool. You know, and I'm, I'm, I feel that this is a, an important place within Cairo. And it's also interesting that the people who are staffing this library are Catholic. And I'm wondering about what their relationship is like with the city around them and the people of Cairo. Yeah, so they're, as I mentioned, very close to Azhar. Um, and they often get a lot of, especially on Fridays, they get a lot of Azharis, so different scholars who, who are involved with Al-Azhar in different capacities. And they love it because they can come in on Friday. Like it's the only place in the city that's open on Fridays. And Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And it's open till seven, I think. Yeah. They, they extended the hours on Fridays because they begged for the, the, the patrons basically begged for them to extend the hours. Um, <laughs> uh, so the staff itself of the library, I think, to my count, there's about 10 staff members, and a lot of them are Egyptian. They're not necessarily Catholic priests. They're employed by the library. Um, though the librarian and several key members are often um, different uh, friars with it or different religious members of the order, of the Dominican order. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's, and they're very careful in who they select. They try to make sure that there's good representation of Christians and Muslims um, on the team, which is, it's often just a lot of fun to be around those people too. And they're also, they're also people I deeply value because you get into all these interesting conversations about, about faith, about current affairs. It's just, it's a lot of fun. And, and while I was there, uh, one of the heads of the library was this Moroccan gentleman named Hamad Mashush. And he would always make his tea at a certain hour, Moroccan tea done a certain way. And there was all this banter because we're all from different parts of the Arabic speaking world. Um, the other friars in the order are responsible for different tasks around the house. And many of the brothers are there to study. So oftentimes they're off studying Arabic or the Quran. Um, and this is also another moment where there are a lot of tea breaks. Like they will, you know, they'll be studying up in their rooms or another part of the library and then they'll come get me and they'll be like, let's go get tea or let's go get lunch or let's go do this. So, or let's go like walk around the garden. They have a stunning garden. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the composition of, of, of the people who are there. Excellent. Well, something else that caught my eye is that this piece came out in Contingent Magazine, which is a venue for publishing where people outside the tenure track who work in history are paid to publish their work. And I thought that this magazine was really cool when it launched because I followed uh, Dr. Aaron Bartram on Twitter and watched like sort of the formation of this new publication come into play for, you know, scholarship, but also to reach wider audiences for people who are sort of outside the tenure track system. And, you know, this is important as well to have venues like this when the humanities are being sort of gutted within universities, but it takes like the expertise and training of scholars like you and sort of like gives respect to the caliber of the work in the system. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or comments about Contingent Magazine as a venue for your scholarship, because I think it's really cool. I love them. I actually did an interview with Mark and with Aaron for my podcast for the Maidan. Um, 
because I just admire their projects so much. And I often call them up to brainstorm. I'm so, so grateful to Mark who worked with me on this piece and has worked on another piece of mine for contingent. Um, and it's really led to just friendship with them and with, uh, and an admiration for their whole team. So, um, it's Mark, Aaron Bartram and Bill Black, uh, who are the sort of editorial hub of contingent. Um, I've, I mean, one of the reasons I got into podcasting to begin with was that I wanted to see how much of a venue for public scholarship it could be. So I've always been interested in public scholarship and I've always been interested in, in sort of trying to do unusual things with what we know and not just packaging it as sort of a monograph as kind of like a, you know, a shortened abbreviation of a monograph even. Um, I think there are interesting and creative ways we can do this work and they're really at the forefront of this. And yeah, um, I'm, I'm just glad it led to this friendship with them because they, they're the people I can kind of call up and brainstorm with. They're also, I think, very, a lot of the times academic projects will be very specific about who they want involved. Uh, so they'll say, oh, we only want a PhD doing this. And I think contingent is very, very mindful of the fact that expertise can come from anywhere. And they'll often highlight you know, archivists, librarians, curators, and their work as well. But one of my favorite things that they did uh, was they ran a series on food. And one of the pieces was by a high schooler. Um, I was on Do the history of Doriaki. Um, and I just, I was just so impressed by that. The fact that they, you know, people can be so dismissive of mm -hmm. different types of expertise. And I was so proud just as my friends, they did that. They've also done a lot of other fun things. Like they did a whole Star Wars series. So yeah, they're they're just, I think they're really, really, in addition to everything else they do, um, sort of content-wise, they're just really, really uh, trying to make it fun as well. And also make sure that people are paid. And this is a standard because oftentimes people just want, to, want things to be done for free. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's really an amazing place for that. And so speaking of public scholarship, you and I came together because of your work with sacred rights. So jumping from the public scholarship of contingent to the public scholarship of sacred rights, I'm wondering what your experience has been like uh, being a part of the 2021 scholarship cohort so far. Yeah, so we're the second cohort to be digital. And I think we're the largest cohort yet because they split us actually into two groups. Um yeah, it's been really, really interesting. I think what I'm really excited about is the fact that there is an interest and an acknowledgement of the necessity of getting our work out to the public. Um, and I'm really glad that, say, I'm, I'm hopeful that Sacred Rights will continue to do its work and the Blues Foundation will continue to fund um, their work because I think in academia, we just have, from a cultural heritage perspective, I think we just don't have a lot of the language or even the training to export our skills um, and a lot of the attention to detail that we learn. And I'm hopeful that this will encourage people to continue to do that um, because there will be growing acknowledgement that we need to be paid for this work and it'll create opportunities for people to 
you know, finish their PhD, hopefully go on to make money in some way and to survive, but then continue to be engaged as a public intellectual um, in some capacity um, by, you know, writing an op-ed or writing an explainer piece or launching a podcast. Like, I think there are just so many different ways people can get at these things. And I'm really excited for the opportunities that exist. I am disappointed, however, that not sacred rights, um, that a lot of the times there's almost the necessity for this to be attached to a university. I'm thinking of a certain ACLS Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, ad I saw recently where I was like, I can't apply for that because my project isn't attached to an institution. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping we can begin to go like, look past that. Um, it's disappointing also because like, why does it have to be an educational institution? There's so many other institutions that are, are doing really great work, like contingent. Um, and I'm hopeful that in the future, we'll continue to open things up. Wonderful. Well, what are you working on next? I'm curious where you are going from here and what you're currently working on for the general public audience that Sacred Rights is so committed to you all reaching. Yeah. So one of the reasons I really wanted to do the Sacred Rights Fellowship was because I'd been doing a lot of writing for the public, but it wasn't even necessarily on religion. And I wanted kind of help honing in on that. So I'm really grateful for having that space to think things through. Um, But uh, the things I'm currently working on are not focused on religion. (laughs) Um, I feel like I'm doing a lot of editing on religion right now um, for Hazine, but um, like we recently released this really beautiful piece about calligraphy and spiritual practice um, by Norman Baig uh, called The Pen Screech. And I really like that as kind of a, an interesting way of getting at both Islamic art, but also theology. But um, all my work right now is kind of focused on food. That's kind of the niche I've been carving out in terms of my writing. I do want to work on a piece on halal food. So halal foods in America, yeah. um, halal meat, like it's, kind of been an obsession lately as someone who doesn't eat a lot of meat I'm weirdly obsessed and yes. I might I'm working on a pitch for that right now so kind of thinking about how oh I don't want to give away kind of my my angle maybe I'll yeah, tell don't. you like um I have a particular <laughs> angle uh and I'm like getting that pitch ready for one of my editors at the counter um hopefully uh so that's that that is something I'm working on religion I also I do want to do a lot of thinking about religion and food. Um, I did release like a list of halal places um, in the city of Chicago for Chicago Eater that aren't, you know, the foods of Muslim majority countries. And that was fun. That kind of got me on this, this path of like thinking a little bit more about meat. Um, but yeah, I want to do more work on Islamic art in particular, because I study Islamic art as like a, as a, as a, practitioner. So, and it's such a big part of how I write about devotional art, about devotional texts too. So maybe something about that, that these are all kind of ideas that are percolating and I'm finishing up a couple of other pieces that are not necessarily on religion. So that's kind of where I'm at right now um, with, with what I'm, I'm working on. I think the biggest how I kind of see it is that I'm bringing the essence of what I've learned as a scholar of devotional texts in a weird way to these different topics. So it's not, it's kind of like a funhouse mirror kind of thing. 
Nice. What would you hope across the coming years of your career, as far as like being a forward facing public scholar, like what are some of your goals within this for like the long term of your career? I think one thing I really want to do is branch out more into Muslim spaces um, and write for Muslim publications as well. I do think that we have a lot, we have a really far way to go. I'm going to say this because we can say it towards the end of the podcast where it's kind of buried, hopefully, maybe, probably not. Most people listen to podcasts all the way through. Um, is I think I think we we really, the Muslim community also suffers from this issue of like wanting things for free. And, you know, it's just, it's not ethical. It doesn't allow people to, to, to live as writers, which is sad because we have this tradition of, of people being able to live off of endowments for writers and thinkers. Um, in different place, parts of the Muslim majority world. So I would like to do more of that. Um, I also, as an editor, I want to encourage more people to write about Islamic art um, as Muslims and kind of how practice kind of figures into things. So I'm hopeful for that. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah. So it's also just, I also want to facilitate. I also kind of want to be able to encourage people and be able to take a lot of what I've learned as even like writing about food, what I've learned from different editorial styles and bring that back to my own editorial work. So yeah, that's kind of where I'd, I'd like to be. <laughs> I love hearing your, your story of all the various ways that you are engaged with knowledge and putting it out into the world for the various, you know, ways that people consume information in the era in which we live. I feel like you're hitting on multiple learning styles and multiple ways of, you know, digesting media and information. And it's just really awesome. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like you have a nice, wide, diverse range of, uh, of output that you put into the world? I want to believe that, but I also feel like people are very confused when they look at their portfolio, even though it makes sense to me. So I appreciate that a lot. That means a lot. Um, yeah, I definitely, I feel like inclusion and access, or rather accessibility and access are kind of at the, at the core of everything I do. I want things to be accessible. And that extends to the way you format an image when you're doing um like editorial setting of a, of a galley for a piece. It go, but it also extends to like how you use social media and then language. And yeah, that's, that's kind of what I, that's what I hope. I don't know if I could accomplish it, but that's what I really hope. Well, any Mansoor, I think that you are accomplishing it. And I'm really glad that you were willing to spend some time with me to come on Classical Ideas and talk about your myriad of projects. And I'm wondering if you can direct people's attention to any places uh, where they might be able to find your work or follow you if they want to know more and see what you get up to in the future. Yeah. So I'm at NAMonsoor26 on Twitter. I'm more or less very, very active on Twitter. Um, uh, I'm also active on the Hazane accounts Twitter, which is at Hazane blog, H-A-Z-I-N-E, all caps, and then blog, uh, which is low caps. Um, I'm trying to be more active on my Instagram, which is just NAMonsword26, um, same deal. Um, and I try to post my stuff there. That's, that's typically how I, I get my material out. So yeah, I would say just follow me on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. I've had a really good time hanging out today. Oh, thank you. It's an honor. <laughs>